0: Okay, my name is Dan Blackwell. Um, I serve in finance and RCs and guest services. Um, today's scripture will be out of John chapter 19, verses 28 through 32, and it's on page 528, and the blue Bibles underneath you. And I believe that's, is that correct? I think it's 38 through 42. Yeah, 38 through 42. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound in linen clothes with the spices, as is the burial custom of of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was closed at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is the word of the Lord, you may be seated.
1: Thank you, Dan, and thank you, Allie. Great job setting this up. Well, I get to preach this passage here. My name is Josh. I'm the pastor here of Redemption North Mount, which is the 10th newest baby congregation of Redemption Church. Uh, and if you're new, which we do, I've already met new people, Redemption Church, we kind of simplify Sundays. We open up a book of the Bible, and then we just walk through it with a preacher, teacher standing up here each Sunday, walking through the passage, and then we just finish the book out, and then we pick another book usually to get into. So we're you're kind of coming in at the end of the movie. It's like the climax already happened. We're getting close to the credits. Like We're getting Close to, and if you're a church person, we're in the like Easter moment, which is interesting because we're doing Easter a month before Easter, so we're going to hear a bunch of Good Friday and Easter sermons before Easter. But we'll figure it out. You'll hearing the Easter message is never a bad thing. But what we're looking at here is a unique story and person that I've never actually preached. In my time as a teacher of God's word, this guy, Joseph of Arimathea, I've kind of dabbled with Nicodemus a little bit, but these are kind of unique, interesting guys. And why are they here? The most simple fact is because they were a part of this, but I think as a teacher and as a Christian, you want to understand like, why did God arrange it all this way? Here's what I want us to do. Flip over real quick to John chapter 20. And I've read this and I put it on the screen, but I like to kind of get us flipping around the Bible John 20, verse 30 and 31 says this. This is the writer, the gospel writer John, giving his reason for this book. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, the book that you're currently looking, the gospel of John. But these, the gospel of John, is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life, in his name, we've said that multiple times over the series. This is why he's writing this, so that you might believe Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And by believing in him, you and I and us and we may have life in his name. That is good news. That preaches well. That's great. However, flip back over now to Joseph and Nick. Here's the reality. When does the like light bulb go on for us when I believe that Jesus is the Christ? the son of the living God, and I have life in his name. Like, when does that happen for each of us? Joseph and Nicodemus show us just how slow and clunky and kind of regretful our timeline actually is. Like, it's not like we're presented with Jesus. This happens for some. And in that moment, all the light bulbs go off, and I am following him. Why? Because he's the Christ. He's the son of the living God. He's where life is. Most of us are like, dabbling, figure it out back in church out of church back in church out of church reading a christian book watching a christian show dabbling why because belief takes time one of my favorite pastors ray orland says gospel plus safety plus time is the ingredient you need for a healthy church healthy family gospel you need the truth You can't be spouting out lies, but you also need safety, a place where people can safely interact with that truth and figure out what Jesus actually means to them and to the world. Non-judgmental space. And then you need this, time. And that's what we see in this. People take time. So hopefully this is encouraging. If you've got, I'll just say it this way, if you've got it figured out, if like the light bulb has gone off and you're walking faithfully and confidently in the steps that God has placed before you, this message is not for you. You should listen for those people in your life that don't have it figured out yet and then go tell them about this great message you heard. But if you don't have it figured out and you feel like I could be doing more and don't think like church, like church attendance, tithing, that sort, like more for Jesus out in the world that he's given me to be out in. This message is for you because this shows in real time. This is how it's worked for these guys. And this is kind of how it works for all of us is we're all just kind of slow and clunky and struggle to get things right. Here's my big idea. As simple as I can say it. The last disciple is still a disciple. Who's Thomas? Who's Nicodemus? Well, they're disciples. They're kind of the back of the line. But they're still disciples. And Jesus still loves them. And we've got last disciples in this room. Some of you feel like a last disciple. Just know you're still Disciple, this is how it works, and this is hopefully going to be an encouraging message for you. Here's the three questions I want to ask of this text, just to keep it simple as we walk through. Who are these disciples? We're actually going to unpack Joseph and Nicodemus, and then here's the two things I really want to camp out on. What's the tension they present to us in discipleship? But then more than that, what's the beauty they offer in discipleship as we look at their life specifically in this little verse here? So that's what, who are these disciples, what's the tension they show us, and what's the beauty they invite us into? So that's what we're going to do. I want to bow and just kind of have a moment of silence just so our hearts can prepare for this. So let's bow our heads and just be still before the Lord a second. Father, we don't need more words. You even tell us in the abundance of words, transgression abounds. So we don't need words. We don't need to fill this moment with words. What we need is life-giving words and life-giving truth. So help us have more life, have more love, have more settledness, have more faith because of our time spent in your story this morning as a church. We love you. Be with us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So here's what I want to do. Just look at these guys, kind of get a picture of who they are. Here's what's interesting. Joseph is mentioned in all four Gospels. So for whatever reason, he gets on the radar of everyone. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, John all write about him. Nicodemus is only mentioned in John, and it's kind of sparse. There's not a ton. So there's quite a bit about Joseph, but it's taken from each Gospel. Nicodemus a little bit. But before we start and kind of dive into the tension and the beauty, who are these disciples? So I just want to walk through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and see what they have to say about these guys. I'll read over here so it's less blocked so this is matthew introducing us to joseph of arimathea i like that joshua of peoria was a good man he was a good good (laughs) good man just call him joe whatever so it doesn't make it weird when it was evening there was a rich man first description from arimathea named joseph who was also a disciple of jesus And he went to Pilate, asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. There's our first description as we're taking mental notes of this guy. Rich bought this tomb. It's his own tomb, and he's incredibly strong. He put the rock in front of the grave himself, according to this, which is crazy. Mark, next one. When evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before Sabbath, which we talked about last week, Joseph, a respected member of the council. So there's his occupation. And now here's his heart, just the rumblings in his heart, who also himself was looking for the kingdom of God. So he's got this, like, unsettledness as he's looking for, anticipating God, he's Jewish, interacting in real time with the Messiah. What does he do? He takes courage and goes to Pilate and asks for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. Next slide. And summoning the centurion, the guy responsible for executing Jesus, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. So Joseph's the one to get the dead, lifeless body of Jesus Christ. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, took him down from the cross wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out from the rock. And again, he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. So we're starting to get... Luke, what do you have to say? Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. We get it. You said it every time, Bible. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man. Interesting addition to his description. Also, who had not consented to their decision... And action. Pause right there. So he's a member of the Sanhedrin, the council, in charge of sending Jesus to the Roman cross. He's there 23 or 75 of these people ruling cities, ruling the Jewish people. He's a part of that. He's the Supreme Court. He's the highest level of authority for the Jewish people. But they want you to know he did not consent to this decision. And he did not, his actions did not cause Jesus to go to the cross. And again, he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb and cut in a stone where no one had yet ever been laid. Just leave it there for a second. You start to see a picture of this guy? Like it's filling out a little bit. He's a disciple. He's on this high level. Like as I was preparing for this, trying to think of modern day, like what is this? This is somebody at the highest level of government for us. Trying to influence our president and our Congress and our Supreme Court to make good decisions out of their faith in Jesus Christ. It's somebody right now in the inner circles of Vladimir Putin who trusts Jesus, loves the Lord, loves justice, wants to do right, and they're figuring out how that faith gets played out in this day and time with the influence I have to steward. He's not just a lowly level whatever. He's like at the top navigating faith in these spaces just It's a complicated sort of picture. Next one takes us to John here. John, what we just heard from Dan. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him a permission, so he came and took away his body. Pause right there. Who is Joseph? He's a rich man. He's a well-respected member of the council. He's a good and righteous man, like lots of good things. He's a disciple, which means at some point his faith was clear enough to where someone signed off on the discipleship. Yep, he's a disciple. But secretly for fear of the Jews. He's like a last disciple, a not all-star type disciple. He's like a lot of us who's got some things that are good and righteous, and he's this, and he does his job well here, but there's a lot of his life, and if you shine light on all areas of his life or her life, it's like the Christianity thing is still secret there. And that's him. That's the disciple we get to learn from there. Just interesting how uh, gracious the Bible is with people, more so than us, to just give the facts of who they are, without filling in a bunch of back narrative, which is what humans do. It's how we win battles with people before we actually go to battle with them. It's like, I filled in every narrative about you. I know you. I know how this goes. This is why you did this. And the Bible just says, here's Joseph. And he was a secret disciple. And all it says is fear of the Jews. There could be like a righteous reason behind that, unrighteous, don't know. But that's our boy, Joseph. What about Nicodemus? He's only mentioned, like I said, in the Gospel of John. And he starts off kind of in secret, and this moment we land on this morning is where he finally kind of pokes his head out into the light to get exposed. But here's where the first time we see him is John chapter 3. It's the famous, for God so loved the world that he gave his only, in that chapter, this is where Nicodemus shows up. Now there was a man of the Pharisee named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do those signs that you do unless God is with him. You are special. There's something about you. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Pause right there. He comes at night. He's intrigued. You're special. There's something about you. Jesus tells him what the kingdom's like and how to enter into it. You must be born again. You got to be a born again believer before anyone had ever heard that term and Nicodemus is like ah, I don't get it and it gives no indication that he left understanding what Jesus said next time we see him is in John chapter 7 so Jesus is in this kerfuffle if that's a word again with the religious leaders he healed somebody on the Sabbath. It's a no-no. Apparently, we don't help people on the Sabbath because God said just to rest. Like, they had misinterpreted, like, whoa, you missed that big time. We must kill him. That Whoa, this escalated quickly. So he's in the middle of that. Pharisees, Jesus healing people on the Sabbath. Let's kill him. Whoa. And this is Nicodemus stepping in, who had gone to him before being Jesus. So he'd spend time with Jesus. And it was one of them, the religious elite leaders, Pharisees, top dogs of the day, said to them, hey, kind of like this. Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? So again, it's not like, oh, I tr- this is my Messiah. This is my Savior. This is my Lord. Just based off our own law and interpretation, it seems like we got to handle this a little more uh, truthfully. And i the like, let's just, can we just pause a second? That's Nicodemus. And then fast forward, and then he's inserted into the story. Right where we're at, John chapter 19, verse 39. Now here's Nicodemus. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, just a reminder of how he entered the story in the darkness, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Pause right there. Those are two guys. That's all the Bible has to say about them. There's extra stuff written about them. They say Joseph maybe died in Britain. Nobody really knows. I know this. The Eastern Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church both have these guys as saints. August 4th, I believe. So they're a big deal in faith streams. But in the Bible, there's like snippet, 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 snippet. That's all we got for you. What do we learn about Nicodemus? He's a Pharisee. So depending on how you see them, he's either great because he's part of the religious elite who really care about Jewish faith being treated properly and passed down properly. Or if you kind of have a character based off the New Testament, they're always the people that seem off. He's one of those guys. He's not just a Pharisee. He's a ruler. So he's like the highest level. I was told that the Chosen the show, I just started watching, but the one on Nicodemus is great. I'm still not there yet, so I, sorry. I bring nothing of the Chosen into this message. <laughs> I just bring the Bible, so that's what we're, amen, <laughs> but it also says, it's very clear, hey, he did this at night, all of his faith interactions were nighttime interactions, you know the nighttime is the right time, it's my old song I used to sing with Aubrey, to be with the one you love, good song. The nighttime in terms of faith in Christianity and following Jesus is a knock. Students in here, young people in here who have faith that are still being played out at night, meaning when no one can actually see how it impacts your life or how your words have any meaning to this world, that's a nighttime faith, and that's what it says about our boy Nicodemus. However... There's this moment where there's this fight, and he stands into that moment and defends Jesus. And then we get to this moment here. He totally puts his head out in the most exposing way ever. Everything the Jews were wanting was leading to this moment. Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. The Romans execute him. This moment, yes, finally done with that guy so we can move on and get back to the Jewish faith like we like it. And he's dead, and his life is gone from his body. The Sabbath is coming. They've got to hurry up to finish this. Joseph and Nicodemus poke their head out at that moment to be with Jesus, who prior they wouldn't even give him the time of day at the light time. It's just the Bible is beautiful. I mean, it has the gospel, the greatest news ever told, but just as a, a book to read, like the way it paints. And introduces characters and brings them to light is like, God had to do this. It, it, it has no hint of like the human pettiness that we have. It's just, here's what people are like. There's good, there's image of God's self, but there's a lot of like clunkiness and nighttime wanderings. Especially with the disciples. And that leads us to our first question I want to hang out in is, what's the tension they offer for us? And I've already kind of hinted at, but here's the tension. They both highlight the same exact tension. Because as I was thinking about this, their last disciples, for a lot of reasons, like it's talked about their wealth, and wealth, you know, can often be like, oh, you're not following Jesus enough because you've got too much money. Like you can talk about or your vocation. You're not a holy enough vocation. You're a member of this political council. That doesn't. But I think what John zeroes in on is the same exact tension for both these men. Verse 38 says this. After these things, Joseph of Merathia, who was a disciple, but secretly for fear of the Jews. He's a disciple, but it's all in secrecy. And then Nicodemus. Nicodemus, who earlier had come to Jesus by night. What's the Bible doing? It's showing us. Here's the tension they're living into. They have this private faith joseph for sure he's called a disciple nicodemus is never called a disciple in scripture that does not mean he's not there i just think it's the way the Bible's also painting the picture of like hey we got disciples secret disciples and we got not yet disciples all over the place so just chill out a little bit christians i read a great tweet the other day the gospel frees you to chill the heck out <laughs> like that is so good and we get to watch these people interact but why are they afraid He's the one they've been waiting for. He's the Messiah. But they both have a lot of influence, a lot of sway, a lot of political capital, a lot of social capital, and they know that stepping out is going to cost them personally. They're both rich. I step out. Like I'm thinking through Joseph. When he dissents to the decision, hey, we must kill this. What did that vote look like? Is it all the yay, say yay, yay. All the nay, say nay, nay. Is it stand up if you think we should not do Like how exposed did he have to get? I know this. He did it and that used a lot of like trust bucks in his heart. Like, oh, that was a big deal. Because in his head, he does not know the death and the resurrection are coming. He's sticking his head out and it still could be like Jesus stayed in the grave. And he's thinking five years down the road, he's got a chance to speak up. And they're like... You know how Joe is, the gullible one. He falls for any guy that walks up saying, he's God. So you got all this like, ah, is this the moment? And that's how it is for all of us. Unless you live in a Christian home, drive in a Christian car, go to a Christian school, shop at the Christian fries, go to Christian gyms, go back and turn on Christian television, go on a street labeled Christian Avenue, we all have times where we're in spaces where there's decisions to be made about how public to be with what I treasure deep in my heart. And that's what we're watching here. It's going to cost me friendships, relationships with family. And just to like throw some more in this to make it heavier, Jesus also has some intense words to say about our ability to stay quiet about him. It's in Luke. He says this Whoever is ashamed of me, in my words, of him or her, will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels? Now, pause real quick. This is like a go to verse in youth camp ministry. How do you seal the deal at the end of youth camp? Well, there's a few things. You got the purity thing. Obviously, it's a go-to. It's gold. It works every time. You got the heaven and hell thing, gold. And you got this thing, gold. Are you going to be ashamed of Jesus right now? If so, he will be ashamed of you when he comes back one day. Okay, just I want you to raise your hand if you love and treasure Jesus. Raise your hand now, please. Thank you. Genesee is the only one who will not experience the wrath of that verse. (laughs) And I think it gets used in weird, manipulative ways, but Jesus said it. And he didn't say it yelling. He didn't say manipulative. He just says, hey, here's the reality. Part of following me is taking on the shame of what it means to be my disciple. And if you don't ever take that shame on, there's a day coming back where I'm going to come and I will turn my face from you and you experience the shame from me So you're like, I got the personal ramifications, and I've got Jesus' words like, okay, just tell me how to be more public so that that's not my my life, and I I do. And I think we watch Joseph and Nicodemus like show us, hey, it's different for everybody. I think a first case is just you kind of doing a diagnostic on yourself, like, how much in the public is my faith? We got students in the room. We got single people in the room. We got young people. We got people starting families in the room. We got older folks. We got all demographics in here here's the question how public is your faith like are you happy with it is the lord pleased with your going public nature of faith tim keller has a diagnostic i think is helpful he gives three categories of christians and i like it because it's we all fit in all these at different times in life but the first one is private What's a private Christian? He says, Christians who have many friendships with non-Christians, but keep their faith to themselves. So you've got friendships. You're in the world. You're not at a Christian everything for all your week. You're with people. You got a job where you're around non-Christians of all shapes, sizes. But there is never a point where you stick your head out and, hey, this is who I am. Or you got the secluded Christians who feel comfortable talking about faith. You could share the gospel all day. You could riff and all this about Jesus and why he's the way, the truth, and the life. But there's never an opportunity because you're around so many Christians. Because you're married to a Christian. Your kids are Christian. Your small group's Christian. Your daycare's You get it. I already did the riff. Public. Christians who have meaningful relationships with non-Christians and share about their faith. And I would add, use their faith to influence how they interact in public spaces. So it's a word thing, but it's also a deed thing. Like me as a realtor, me as a business person, me as a CPA. My dad's CPA used to be annoyed with him. Why? Because my dad's a Christian. And he was always making him do exactly what he thought was the most honorable and full of integrity thing. He was being a Christian in public spaces. Which one best describes Jesus would say, don't be ashamed of me. He doesn't say it in like a... He just says it. And our question is, how do we become more public with our faith? I think sitting with the reasons why we're staying private is helpful. Like, why did these guys stay private? Because it was going to cost them a lot. As I think about us, this cultural moment, us as a church, us as where we're at in time and space, I think two big categories come to mind. Here's the first reason we stay private, and this is a good reason to stay private. You live in a culture that is hostile and will punish you for your faith words and faith choices and faith policy and faith. That is not quite the country we live in, but people are experiencing that more and more. If I say this, then I know this is going to happen. The most I've ever experienced this sort of culture is I went to Turkey a few years ago. It was amazing. Got to spend time in Istanbul, and I got to preach To an Istanbul church plan. I was so excited to prep this message. Like, I'm like, I know Turkey's been around a while, but I think this is going to be the glory days for Turkey after they hear this. Like, this is what they've been waiting for. Like, I know I'm just a 30-year-old nothing, but I'm bringing it. I had two points to my message. We are the new family of God. Second point, we are the missionaries sent by God. And I'm like, what? Reading my iPad, like, prepping. I got an interpreter. I got to give space here and... This guy, Danny, a Romanian pastor who was there, came and tapped me on the shoulder. He's like, hey, Josh, thanks for, uh, you know, being here. And I don't know if that's Romanian or Italian or some mixture, but uh, just, just, a few, just a few things. <laughs> He's like, actually, just one thing. I'm like, oh, what's up, Danny? He's like, uh, there's a word that is off limits completely in this country. I'm like, oh, yeah, tell me what it is. He's like, Missionary. Or mission. Or missional. <laughs> if you use those, we will be in trouble. We'll be tagged. We'll get the label from the, like, we don't use those. And there's all this reason, like, the holy wars was a mission. But it's like, am I, do I pull out the Jesus words on Dan? Hey, don't be ashamed of the words of Jesus. No, he's doing exactly what he should be doing. I want to support that guy because he's smart and wise. I don't want to support the street preacher in Moscow right now blasting Vladimir. I want to support people that are secret and wise, helpful ways to get to the point where they could be like Joseph at the crux of the moment and step in and serve the Lord and serve others. But here's where we live. We don't really live in the hot It's becoming more, and it's going to become more. But currently, here's where we live in this cultural space where we're going to be ashamed for the things we say or do regarding faith in Jesus. Like, there's going to be very little punishment. It's just going to be like, you're going to be that guy, you're going to be that girl. You're going to sound like a caveman. As you step out into your homes with family members that don't believe this, your neighborhoods with neighbors that don't believe this, workplaces where this is seen as, ah. And for a few reasons, they have a misconstrued view of what the Bible might say, or they might know exactly what it says and they think that's crazy. Or here's where I land, and it it leaves me paralyzed, honestly, a lot of times, is I don't want to identify with Christianity because there are so many goofy Christians out there that I don't want, oh, you're like that guy, Jim Bob, no, 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 not Jim Bob, so like students in the room, as you start to say, oh, I'm a Christian, these people are going to have their narratives in their head, oh, you're like this, 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 like I wrote a few, just, and there's an endless, but this is the space we live in, this is the tension, of going public in the spaces. We got people who are some of the only Christians in their families. Parents that aren't Christians, think you're crazy, think you left whatever sanity behind. The loneliest and saddest just in counseling and pastoring is spouses, where one's a believer, the other's not. It's like you're to be united, and one person thinks you're crazy. Here's a big one in this church, and I don't have a solution, but trying to date as a Christian in this culture how do you do it? just in person like where do you meet people face to face now I don't want to be that person going to church like <laughs> okay I guess my I guess I'll do the app thing I'll do the dating apps but then it's like if I put Christian it's like what does that even communicate because I know guys that I counsel don't see that as oh we're gonna love Jesus together it's sort of like oh okay well, let me figure out how to get into this relationship in a sneaky way so like all over the place how do we stick our head out and say we are christian this is the gospel this is what christianity means in this moment it's all this tension that's provided work think about work all the different jobs represented here all the teachers all the business people all the what does it mean to be uniquely christian monday in your work and not be weird and annoying and not be so Christian-y in the moment that you're not even doing the job they've told you to do. It's like, because I don't want just a bunch of people like ranting about the gospel. Hey, you're an accountant. I actually just wanted my taxes done. (laughs) Two things I see just as I walk through this story that are sort of encouraging, I think for, it was for me, hopefully for you. But as we think about Joseph Nicodemus coming out into the light. Like what, what's encouraging from the story? Here's the first thing is the lights went on for them at different times than the other disciples. And that's true of every Christian in the room. Like when did your lights go on for Jesus? Here's what I know about Joseph of Arimathea. He is described as a disciple of Jesus, which means the lights turned on. God's with him. He's seen Jesus and trust Jesus for who he says he is. But then he goes secret. And then again at the cross, the lights go on again in a new way, and he sees. Nicodemus is in the dark, in the dark, in the dark, steps out into the light at the cross, and their lights go off, which is fascinating because you look at the other disciples, most of their lights went on after resurrection. Peter, oh, yes, I knew it. Does the Aussie thing, yes, go. Yes, go. Thomas, ah, Put your fingers here, Thomas. Lights on. Apostle Paul stops him on the road. Hey, why are you persecuting me? Lights go on. For these, it was not the power of the resurrection. It was not the risen Savior that turned the lights on. It was them looking at the humanity and the tenderness of Jesus' lifeless body on a cross. I'm going public. That's true for all of us. That's the most frustrating thing about parenting, pastoring, discipling is like, I'm not in charge of when those lights go on. But God turns our lights on. And just remember when your lights turn on. And we get to see, oh, there's still hope. Jesus is dead, but the lights are turning on in that moment. It's amazing. Here's the other thing I see, is how did they go public with their faith? It's very synced up with just who they already are in the world, meaning They did not switch vocations in the moment. My lights are on. I'm going to be a monk. I'm going into ministry. I'm getting a PhD in theology. No, it's, he's a ruler of the Jews, and he uses his clout and influence to lead that moment well. And Joseph is a respected member of the council, and he uses his influence and his closeness to Pilate. Earlier in this gospel, we see them go to Pilate, and Peter has to stay outside. Why? Because he's just a fisherman. I don't hang with fishermen. Oh, Joseph's here. Joey, come on in. (laughs) And he uses his influence, his vocation, his calling to serve the Lord in his most vulnerable moment. That's amazing. That's just discipleship 101. Hey, you've met Jesus. What do you do now? Do you quit at all? No. What were you doing before? How has God gifted you? Let's keep pressing into that. Now with the spirit and the word. And God is going to make you more than you could ever imagine. And Joseph, we're going to see Joseph and Nicodemus start that process right here. I'm going to be a disciple in the vocation God's placed me. But some of you are like, that's still a little, like, ah, up in the clouds, like, that's a lot. Tim Keller had a great blog a few years ago. How do you go public with your faith after that private, secluded, public stuff? And he has very simple, like, oh, interesting. And I just want to riff them real quick. If you want, write down the one that means most to you. I'll probably send out a blog this week. But here's the first thing. He says, let your friends know you go to church. That's a, oh, that's easy enough. And I it's like, well, that's sticking my head out. Yeah, that's the point. It's how do you go public? Well, tell them you go to church. Next thing. Listen to their problems with real sympathy and care without actually giving Christian insight or advice. I mean, now you present yourself as the, advocate as a counselor type just like jesus is to you and you listen like oh i i could trust that person third one share one of your own problems with them this has been a huge struggle for us as we've navigated because i feel this weight a lot we're only in phoenix to plant this church so that's this is what we came this is what we're about so when i'm on my street i'm like constantly reminded like i came here to plant a church and see people come to jesus and i've got all these non-christians around me like what do i do and one of the hardest like, backstories they bring into it is like, oh, you're, you don't have any problems. It's like, have you met any of my kids? <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> have you met my family? Have you seen inside me at all? Just sharing, like here's a problem I struggle with a lot. Here's the next thing he says. Fourth, ask them what they believe about God and just listen without offering anything. What do you think happens with all this? Oh, interesting. All right, well, I'll see you next week. Number five, share your own story of faith journey and your turning points. I used to love doing this with Youth Ministry kids. I'd just draw a line and there'd be like high points and low points, like summarize your life in three highs and three lows. Like what are those moments for you? When I came to faith, like for us, there's a lot of pain around miscarriages. Like that was a moment where God grabbed hold of my heart and like brought me in. Share part of your story. Introduce non-believing friends with other Christians. This is one of the beauties of this church currently is we got great, normal people who love Jesus. At some point, others trickle in, and I don't know how it all breaks down on a pie chart as far as I, this is a normal group or not, but right now we're trending great. <laughs> Invite people to be around other Christians. Uh, next one. Sit down and ask, what's your biggest objection to the Christian faith? I think it's going to be a big one. Oh, really? Because I think it's not going to line up with what we assume a lot of time. Mm -hmm. That's been my experience. Here's the other one. Bring your friends to some key events. Young professionals with Allie. Whatever. Men's Bible study. The guys are at Press Coffee, Friday and Saturday, and they just take over the top floor over there. And Cody's there hugging everyone, and Andrew's sharing the Bible, and people just get trickled in like, oh, that's what Christianity's about. Dude's reading the Bible, Yeah. Number nine, read a Christian book or the Bible with a friend. That's kind of like really sticking your head out there. Hey, would you read this book with me? Hey, would you read a gospel with me? In my estimation, and this is just me, one man, this is not speaking on behalf of redemption leadership or the Lord, just like I think more and more discipleship going forward in the culture where we live in, a lot of it's just going to happen one-on-one Bible reading discipleship together. Just I think there's a distrust of groups, and it's like, I don't like the gimmicks. I just, I just want to know, like, what you think this means. And I think one-on-one Bible reading is going to be like gold, is gold, and will be. And then number 10, this is where you just bring the hammer, share the gospel with them. Part of sticking your head out is going to be using your words to share the gospel about God's holiness That he created all things. That we at our core are made in the image of God. Beautiful and capable of great things. But at our core are also rebellious. Sinners and broken, and a part of the brokenness, and participating in the brokenness, but God, in his mercy and grace, set forth a plan to bring a redeemer, a fixer, a healer, and his name is Jesus Christ, and he came to make all things new, and we are not shipping off to heaven one day. Heaven and earth are coming together one day, and King Jesus will reign, and it'll be amazing. Do you believe that? Amen. Well, not yet. Well, that's the gospel. And that's what we get to do as we go public with our faith. That's the tension. We are private or varying levels and colors of private Christians. And we're trying to go public. And we need the spirit. We need each other. But this picture, I just want to end with what I think is the beauty that is offered in this. What beauty do these two men show us? Like discipleship, if it's all just tension, I don't want to sign up for something. that just puts me in a bunch of tension spots. But if it invites me into something beautiful, I want to be a part. I want that. What does the gospel through this story invite us into? I think two things. invites us into a story and invites us into union with Christ. invites us into a very real story. Like here's just fascinating. Joseph and Nicodemus were written into the gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. That's good news. I'd like to be a part of the Bible. I'm not, but these guys are. This is the greatest book ever given, and they are in it. But more than that, they are written into the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and what he has done in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. God invited them. Like, what is the gospel? If you look throughout scriptures, there's not very often it's like summarized. Here's the gospel. But in Corinthians, here's what Paul says. You want to know the gospel? Here's what it is. I deliver to you as first importance. Here's the most important thing. Your financial philosophy, your political philosophy, your parenting philosophy. First importance is this that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he showed himself to many people post resurrection. That is the gospel. He died for our sins. Scripture said so. He was buried. He rose and he saw people and people saw him. End of story gospel. Why is that? Why am I saying that? He died for our sins. Romans took care of that through the Jewish help and his own willingness to go to the cross. But who takes care of the burial? A dead man doesn't take care of his own burial. He's innocent. He's innocent. And he's now deceased, and he has no life in him. But the gospel is that he died according to the scripture, and he was buried. Who gets to write that part of the story? Joe and Nick, Joseph and Nicodemus. Verse 40 says this They took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, I love that the garden's back again, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. They're in the gospel story now. And they get written in at the death where he's only dead a few days, I get it. The same thing is happening now in this moment. The Spirit is inviting us into a story. Now we're in a new chapter. We are the church, the body of Christ left here on earth to do His work, His words, and His deeds. And we've been invited into the story, and our story matters. We're not extras that don't get looked at ever. My friend Robin Dallas, he's a great guy. He was in Bring It On, too, for you competitive cheerleaders out there who love the series. <laughs> And I've watched it multiple times, like, Rob Clark, where are you at? Rob Clark. And I've yet to see Rob Clark, because he's just an extra. We are not extras. We've been invited to participate in the story of God, and we see it in the life of Joseph. That is amazing. That is beautiful. But more than that, we're not just characters in God's story. How close does Joseph and Nicodemus get to Jesus? We get invited to the story, and we get invited to intimate, the biblical word is union, With Jesus. Like, imagine, one day we're going to see Joseph, and some of you are going to talk business with him. Like, tell me what it's like to do business in Rome. And he'll have answers and he'll be engaging, I hope. Hey, tell me what it's like to be on the Sanhedrin. Like, I read that a few times. What was that about? He's like, yeah, it's what you'd expect a bunch of cranky old guys whining about stuff. When did you meet Jesus? And he'll get to tell us when the disciple thing really came in. But here's what I know. Here's the story he's going to love to tell. And he's going to probably cry every time he tells it. There's this older guy that's hanging out with us pastors who came through a lot, a lot of like just anger in his heart. And God redeemed him and got him out of that. Now he just wants to care for pastors. And he can't get through a sentence without (laughs) just bawling. Joseph of Arimathea, can you tell me what it was like to be at the foot of the cross as our bloodied Savior Lay in your hands, lifeless, unrecognizable. We get to listen to that story one day, and that's part of the gospel. And Joseph shows us a picture of what it means to be one with Christ. We get to share with him in his life, and his resurrection, and all the great things, but we also get to share with him in his sufferings, in his blood-soaked, lifeless body. We get to be unified, in union with him. That is good news. And it's given to Joseph a secret fearful disciple and Nicodemus who spent most of his faith journey in the dark and it's offered to you and to I and to us because God is gracious, far more gracious than any of us could ever imagine. He invites us to join his story and to be close, close, close with him. You want to pray with me? Let's bow our heads. God, encourage us through your word. That your grace really is sufficient for all things. That your grace is not a one-time offer at the point of conversion, but your grace abounds. Your grace overflows. Your grace is way too much for any of us to fathom. And your grace is offered to us in our discipleship as we walk with you and figure out how to do what we're supposed to do, not just in private, in our own heart, in our own mind, our own thoughts, but how we're supposed to f- live faithfully as followers in a world where it's hard and scary and dark and there's consequences to us sticking our head out for you. So I got to pray that the, the stories of Joseph and Nicodemus would show us what it looks like to live faithfully and how to become more public with our faith, but more than that, I pray that it would show us your graciousness and just how kind you are in leading us into repentance and life and life abundantly. God, let us walk out of here with a little more confidence and swagger, knowing that you love us no matter what we came in here with. Jesus, I pray. Amen.